Chapter One of Jacqueline of Golden River by H. M. Egbert. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter One A Dog and a Damsel. As I sat on a bench in Madison Square, after half-past eleven in the evening, at the end of one of those mild days that sometimes occur in New York, even at the beginning of December, a dog came trotting up to me, stopped at my feet, and whined. There is nothing remarkable in having a strange dog run to one, nor in seeing the creature rise on its hind legs and paw at you for notice and a caress. Only this happened to be an Eskimo dog. It might have been mistaken for a collie or a sheepdog by nearly everybody who saw it, though most men would have turned to admire the softness of its fur and to glance at the heavy collar with the silver studs. But I knew the Eskimo breed, having spent a summer in Labrador. I stroked the beast, which lay down at my feet, raising its head sometimes to whine, and sometimes darting off a little way and coming back to tug at the lower edge of my overcoat. But my mind was too much occupied for me to take any but a perfunctory interest in its maneuvers. My eight years of thankless drudgery as a clerk, following on a brief adventurous period after I ran away to sea from my English home, had terminated three days before upon receipt of a legacy and I had at once left Tom Carson's employment. Six thousand guineas, thirty thousand dollars, the will said. I had not seen my uncle since I was a boy. But he had been a bachelor, we were both Hewlett's, and I had been named Paul after him. I had seen for some time that Carson meant to get rid of me. It had been a satisfaction to me to get rid of him instead. He had been alternately a prospector and a company promoter all the working years of his rather shabby life. He had organized some dubious concerns, but his new offices on Broadway were fitted so unostentatiously that anyone could see the Northern Exploitation Company was not trying to glitter for the benefit of the small investor. Coal fields and timberland somewhere in Canada the concession was supposed to be. But Tom was as secretive as a clam, except with Simon LaRue. LaRue was a parish politician from some place near Quebec, and his clean-shaven, wrinkled face was as hard and mean as that of any city boss in the United States. His vile Anglo-French expletives were as nauseous as his cigars. He and old Tom used to be closeted together for hours at a time. I never liked the man, and I never cared for Carson's business ways. I was glad to leave him the day after my legacy arrived. He only snorted when I gave him notice, and told the cashier to pay me my salary to date. He had long before summed me up as a spiritless drudge. I don't believe he gave another thought to me after I left his office. My plans were vague. I had been occupying, at a low rental, 
a tiny apartment consisting of two rooms, a bath, and what is called a kitchenette at the top of an old building in 10th Street, which was about to be pulled down. Part of the roof was gone already, and there was a six-foot hole under the eaves. I had arranged to leave the next day, and a storage company was to call in the morning for my few sticks of furniture. I had half planned to take boat for Jamaica. I wanted to think and plan. I had nobody dependent on me, and was resolved to invest my little fortune in such a way that I might have a modest competence, so that the dreadful specter of poverty might never leer at me again. The Eskimo dog was growing uneasy. It would run from me, looking round and uttering a succession of short barks, then run back and tug at my overcoat again. I began to become interested in its maneuvers. Evidently it wished me to accompany it, and I wondered who its master was and how it came to be there. I stooped and looked at the collar. There was no name on it except the makers, scratched and illegible. I rose and followed the beast, which showed its eager delight by running ahead of me, turning round at times to bark, and then continuing on its way with a precision which showed me that it was certain of its destination. As I crossed Madison Square, the light on the Metropolitan Tower flashed the first quarter. Broadway was in full glare. The lure of electric signs winked at me from every corner. The restaurants were disgorging their patrons, and beautifully dressed women in fine furs, accompanied by escorts in evening dress, stood on the pavements. Taxicabs whirled through the slush. I began to feel a renewal in me of the old, old thrill the city had inspired when I entered it a younger and a more hopeful man. The dog turned down a street in the twenties, ran on a few yards, bounded up a flight of stone steps, and began scratching at the door of a house that was apparently empty. I say apparently because the shades were down at every window and the interior was unlit, so far as could be seen from the street, but I knew that at that hour it must contain from fifty to a hundred people. This place I knew by reputation. It was Jim Daly's notorious but decently conducted gambling establishment, which was running full blast at a time when every other institution of this character had found it convenient to shut down. So the creature's master was inside Daly's, and it wished me to get him out. This was evidence of unusual discernment in his best friend, but it was hardly my prerogative to exercise moral supervision over this adventurous explorer of a chillier country even than his northern wastes. I looked in some disappointment at the closed doors and turned away. I meant to go home, and I had proceeded about three paces when the lock clicked. I stopped. The front door opened cautiously, and the gray head of Jim's negro butler appeared. Behind it was the famous grill of cast steel, capable, according to rumor, of defying the axes of any number of raiding reformers. 
Then emerged one of the most beautiful women that I had ever seen. I should have called her a girl, for she could not have been more than twenty years of age. Her hair was of a fair brown, the features mottled splendidly, the head poised upon a flawless throat that gleamed white beneath a neckpiece of magnificent sable. She carried a sable muff, too, and under these furs was a dress of unstylish fashion and cut that contrasted curiously with them. I thought that those loose sleeves had passed away before the nineteenth century died. In one hand she carried a bag, into which she was stuffing a large roll of bills. As she stepped down to the street, the dog leaped up at her. A hand fell caressingly upon the creature's head, and I knew that she had one servant who would be faithful unto death. She passed so close to me that her dress brushed my overcoat, and for an instant her eyes met mine. There was a look in them that startled me, terror and helplessness, as though she had suffered some benumbing shock which made her actions more automatic than conscious. This was no woman of the class that one might expect to find in dailies. There was innocence in the face and in the throat, uplifted as one sees it in young girls. I was bewildered. What was a girl like that doing in dailies at half-past twelve in the morning? She began walking slowly and rather aimlessly, it seemed to me, along the street in the direction of Sixth Avenue. My curiosity was unbounded. I followed her at a decent interval to see what she was going to do, but she did not seem to know. The girl looked as if she had stepped out of a cloister into an unknown world, and the dog added to the strangeness of the picture. The street loafer stared after her, and two men began walking abreast of her on the other side of the road. I followed more closely. As she stood upon the curb on the east side of Sixth Avenue, I saw her glance timidly up and down before venturing to cross. There was little traffic, and the cars were running at wide intervals, but it was quite half a minute before she summoned resolution to plunge beneath the structure of the elevated railroad. When she had reached the other side, she stood still again before continuing westward. The two men crossed the street and planted themselves behind her. They were speaking in a tongue that sounded like French, and one had a patch over his eye. A taxicab was crawling up behind them. I was sure that they were in pursuit of her. The four of us were almost abreast in the middle of the long block between Sixth and Seventh Avenues. We were passing a dead wall and the street was almost empty. Suddenly the man with the patch turned on me, lowered his head, and butted me off my feet. I fell into the roadway, and at that instant the second fellow grasped the girl by the arm, and the taxicab whirled up and stopped. The girl's assailant seemed to be trying to force her into the cab. One caught at her arm, the other seized her waist. The bag flew open, scattering a shower of gold pieces upon the pavement. And then, before I could get upon my feet again, 
the dog had leaped at the throat of the man with the patch and sent him stumbling backward. Before he recovered his balance, I was at the other man, striking out right and left. It was all the act of an instant, and in an instant the two men had jumped into the taxicab and were being driven swiftly away. I was standing beside the terrified girl when an ill-looking crowd, gathering from God knows where, surrounded us and fought like harpies for the coins which lay scattered about. I laid my hands on one who had grabbed a gold piece from between my feet, but the girl pulled at my arm distractedly. She was white and trembling, and her big gray eyes were full of fear. "'Help me,' she pleaded, clinging to my sleeve with her little gloved hands. "'The money is nothing. I have eight thousand dollars more in my bag. Help me away!' She spoke in a foreign, bookish accent, as though she had learned English at school. Fortunately for us, the mob was too busily engrossed in its search to hear her words. So I drew her arm through mine, and we hurried toward Sixth Avenue, where we took an uptown car. We had reached Herald Square when it occurred to me that my companion did not seem to know her destination. So we descended there. I intended to order a taxicab for her, had forgotten the dog, but now the beautiful creature came bounding up to us. "'Where are you going?' I asked the girl. "'I will take you to your home, or hotel,' I added with a slight upward intonation on the last word. "'I do not know where I am going,' she answered slowly. "'I have never been in New York until today.' "'But you have friends here?' I asked. She shook her head. "'But are you really carrying eight thousand dollars about with you in New York at night?' I asked in amazement. "'Don't you know this city is full of thieves, and that you are in the worst district?' For a moment it occurred to me that she might have been decoyed into dailies. And yet I knew it was not that sort of place. Indeed, Daly's chief desire was to remain as inconspicuous as possible. It was very difficult to get into Daly's. "'Do you know the character of the place you came out of?' I asked, trying to find some clue to her actions. "'The character?' she repeated, apparently puzzled at first. "'Oh, yes. That is Mr. Daly's gaming house. I came to New York to play at roulette there.' She was looking at me so frankly that I was sure she was wholly ignorant of evil. "'My father is too ill to play himself,' she explained. "'So I must find a hotel near Mr. Daly's house, and then I shall play every night until our fortune is made. Tonight I lost nearly two thousand dollars. But I was nervous in that strange place.' and the system expressly says that one must lose at first. Tomorrow I raise the stakes and we shall begin to win. See? She pulled a little pad from her bag covered with a maze of figuring. But where do you come from? I asked. Where is your father? Again I saw that look of terror come into her eyes. She glanced quickly about her, 
and I was sure she was thinking of escaping from me. I hastened to reassure her. "'Forgive me,' I said. "'It is no business of mine. And now, if you will trust me a little further, I will try to find a hotel for you.' It would have disarmed the worst man to feel her little hand slipped into his arm in that docile manner of hers. I took her to the Seward, the Grand, the Cornhill, and the Merrimack, each in turn. Vain hope. You know what the New York hotels are. When I asked for a room for her, the clerk would eye her furs dubiously, look over his book in pretense, and then inform me that the hotel was full. At the Merrimack I sat in the lobby and sent her to the clerk's desk alone, but that was equally useless. I realized pretty soon that no reputable hotel in New York City would accommodate her at that hour. We were standing presently in front of the Herald office. Her hand still touched my arm, and I was conscious of an absurd desire to keep it there as long as possible. My curiosity had given place to deep anxiety on her account. What was this child doing in New York alone? What sort of father had let her come, if her story were true? What was she, a European? Too unconventional for that. An Argentine? A runaway from some South American convent? Her skin was too fair for Spanish blood to flow beneath it. She looked French and had something of the French frankness. Canadian? I dared not ask her any more questions. There was only one thing to do, and though I shrank from the suggestion, it had to be made. It is evident that you must go somewhere tonight, I said. I have two rooms on Tenth Street which I am vacating tomorrow. They are poorly furnished, but there is clean linen. And if you will occupy them for the night, I can go elsewhere, and I will call for you at nine in the morning. She smiled at me gratefully. She did not seem surprised at all. You have some baggage? I asked. No, monsieur, she answered. She was French, then, Canadian French, I had no doubt. I was hardly surprised at her answer. I had ceased to be surprised at anything she told me. "'Tomorrow I shall show you where to make some purchases, then,' I said. "'And now, mademoiselle, suppose we take a taxicab.' As her hand tightened upon my arm, I saw a man standing on the west side of Broadway and staring intently at us. He was of a singular appearance. He wore a fur coat with a collar of Persian lamb, and on his head was a black lambskin cap such as is worn in colder climates, but is seldom seen in New York. He looked about thirty years of age, he had an aspect decidedly foreign, and I imagined that he was scowling at us malignantly. I was not sure that this surmise was not due to an overactive imagination, but I was determined to get away from the man's scrutiny, so I called a taxicab and gave the driver my address. "'Go through some side streets and go fast,' I said. 
The fellow nodded. He understood my motive, though I fear he may have misinterpreted the circumstances. We entered, and the girl nestled back against the comfortable cushions, and we drove at a furious speed, dodging down side streets at a rate that should have defied pursuit. During the drive I instructed my companion emphatically. "'Since you have no friends here, you must have confidence in me, mademoiselle,' I said. "'And you are my friend? Well, monsieur, be sure, I trust you,' she answered. "'You must listen to me attentively, then,' I continued. "'You must not admit anybody to the apartment until I ring tomorrow.' I have the key, and I shall arrive at nine and ring, and then unlock the door. But take no notice of the bell. You understand? Yes, monsieur, she answered wearily. Her eyelids drooped. I saw that she was very sleepy. When the taxicab deposited us in front of the house, I glanced hastily up and down the road. There was another cab at the east end of the street, but I could not discern if it were approaching me or stationary. I opened the front door quickly and admitted my companion, then preceded her up the uncarpeted stairs to my little apartment on the top floor. I was the only tenant in the house, and therefore there would be no cause for embarrassment. As I opened the door of my apartment, the dog pushed past me. Again I had forgotten it, but it had not forgotten its mistress. I looked inside my bare little rooms. It was hard to say good-bye. "'Till tomorrow, mademoiselle,' I said. "'And won't you tell me your name?' She drew off her glove and put one hand in mine. "'Jacqueline,' she answered. "'And yours?' "'Paul,' I said. Au revoir, Monsieur Paul, then, and take my gratitude with you for your goodness. I let her hand fall and hurried down the stairs, confused and choking, for there was a wedding ring upon her finger. End of chapter 1 Recording by Roger Moline